Well, it's exciting to open God's Word with you again this morning, back in the book of Colossians. I've missed our time together here and look forward to to continuing our journey through Colossians chapter 3. So today we'll be in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 17. While you're turning there, I was thinking this week and realized that there are actually just two kinds of people in the world. There are those who like their food to touch and those who don't. For those of you that grew up going to public school as I did, you know that in elementary school you served your lunch on a nice thick tray that has dividers. It's perfectly designed to keep the juices of the the corn or heaven forbid the spinach from rolling into your mashed potatoes or chicken nuggets or that wonderful rectangular piece of pizza that they would serve every now and then. Now, some of you have chosen to continue this trend in your adult life, and nothing can ruin a meal more quickly for you than when the juices of different foods run together on the plate. If you had it your way, all plates would be divider plates. Others of you just ignore it, assuming that it's all going to the same place anyway, and so you choose to ignore the random green bean that ends up in the wrong place. And I suppose that when it comes to food, we can agree to disagree and that there are more than one way to think about this issue. But when it comes to the Christian life, it's a different story. There are many Christians who take this divider plate mentality when it comes to their spiritual lives. There are certain spheres of life in which they allow their faith to inform and others that they do not. They have certain sets of Christian friends with whom they talk about Christian things and act as a Christian would act. And then they have another set of friends in which perhaps they don't even know that they're in Christ. They have certain activities they participate in that they allow their faith to inform. And then they have other activities that are kept separate. But this divider plate Christianity in which we compartmentalize our lives and only allow certain areas of life to be influenced by our faith is completely out of step with the teaching of Scripture. In our text this morning, Paul's going to remind us that when we come to Christ, when we are saved, a radical transformation takes place in which the Holy Spirit regenerates us and makes us new. And that process of sanctification that begins on that day is to affect every single sphere of our life. If you're in Christ, Paul says there is no mute button or pause button on the Christian faith. But instead, who you are in Christ should and must show up in everyday life, in every situation. Now, I realize that it's been some time since we were in Colossians chapter 3, and so I'm going to give you an an overview, and perhaps some of you haven't been with us through the study of Colossians, and so let me just bring us up to speed because we're closing out a section that we've been in for some time now. Remember, the theme of Colossians as a book is the all-sufficiency of Christ. Over and over again, Paul is bringing us back to Christ and who Christ is. In chapter 1, we saw some general introductory remarks and then that wonderful passage of the exaltation of Christ. He is the image of God. He is divine. 
Secondly, in chapter 2, we saw instruction regarding false teachers. Paul told us how not to pursue the Christian faith. There were apparently false teachers in Colossae trying to tempt the people to follow after a, a wrong view of sanctification. And so he says that's not how you're to pursue your Christian faith, but chapter 3 is how you're to pursue your Christian faith. We've seen now for several weeks the foundation of Christian living. And chapter 3 breaks down, as we've said, into these two major sections, verses 1 to 4, the Christian perspective, how we're to think about life and view life, and secondly, the Christian life, verses 5 to 17, how we're to actually live. And remember that Paul has given us this wonderful process of change. We've looked at it several times. But in the Christian life, as you mortify sin and pursue righteousness, we are to follow this pattern of putting off, step one, putting off sin. Step two, renewing our mind with the truth of Scripture. And then thirdly, putting on righteousness. This is the pattern of the process of change in the Christian life. Remember, the theme of this section that we've been in now for several weeks is simply this. Every Christian must proactively put sin to death and pursue righteousness. Every Christian must proactively put sin to death and pursue righteousness. And as we read in our scripture reading, if you caught it again, hopefully it was bringing back memories of the things that we've studied together in this text. But in verse 12, he gives us this wonderful motivation Why should we be motivated to obey Paul's command? Well, it's because of our identity in Christ. Paul says you've been chosen. You are holy. That is set apart unto God, and you are loved. Because of who we are in Christ, we should then obey the command to put on righteousness. Remember that Paul has commended to us several virtues that we're to put on. If you're in Christ, your life should be characterized by certain things, such as these five virtues that Paul says should especially characterize our relationships in the church. We're to put on heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And a church that does that, a church that puts on those characteristics will bear these fruits, There'll be a church that bears with one another, that bears up under the weight of difficulty in relationships, and there'll be a church that forgives as they've been forgiven. Remember, Paul reminded us then to put on this essential virtue, this overarching virtue that really runs through every other virtue, which is love, to love one another. Now, that brings us to verses 15 to 17, where we've been camping out for a while now, looking at four fundamental commitments of every believer. Paul says there are some foundational truths that should be the reality for each of us if we're in Christ. We've already seen the first three commitments. Today, we'll look at the fourth. Let me remind you of the first three. Commitment number one, he says, be controlled by peace, specifically the peace of Christ. Secondly, be committed to gratitude. We should be known for those who are grateful to God. And then thirdly, the last one we saw together is we're to be filled with the Scripture. You remember that that took a little bit of a different turn because Paul said if a church corporately is filled with the Scripture, one of the ways that will show up is through corporate singing. We will sing doctrinally rich truths And as we sing together, as we just did a moment ago, we are, of course, worshiping and glorifying God as our primary focus. 
But in addition to that, we're encouraging and edifying one another in the truth as we hear our voices collectively lifting up these wonderful truths to God. Now, that's where we left off last time. And that brings us to our text for today, which is verse 17. Chapter 3, verse 17. Let's look at this together. Paul says, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Now, this is a fourth and final commitment, and I'll give it to you up front. Here is the commitment Paul is calling us to. We're to be imitators of Christ. Be imitators of Christ. Notice how he begins there in verse 17. Whatever you do. This is what's amazing about Scripture is in his infinite wisdom, God has chosen not to give us a command for every single situation we will face in life. He gives us many commands in the Scripture, but in addition to that, he gives us these overarching principles that can be taken and applied to any situation in life. And this is an example of one of those overarching principles that is to define us as Christians, notice he says, whatever. Whatever is about as exhaustive of a word as you can get. Whatever. It covers the gamut of activities or actions that a person will ever commit in their life. And the intention is to say that every single thing that you do as a Christian is to be shaped and defined by one certain grid. There is a grid through which we, we put all of our speech and all of our deeds. And Paul's going to get to that grid here in just a moment. Remember, Paul's given us several very clear commands leading up to this. We saw them earlier. In verse 5, he said, consider yourselves dead to every form of sexual immorality. That was a command. In verse 8, he said, put off the sins of anger. In verse 11, he said, show no partiality between believers in the church. In verse 12, in summary, he, he said, put on the fruits of the Spirit. And then in verses 13 and 14, bear with one another, forgive one another, love one another. So Paul's not against giving clear commands, but understand that Paul does not want us thinking like Pharisees. Remember, the Pharisees had boiled down the law of God into these clear commands and their life was basically a checkbox. As long as every day checks off these things, me and God are good. But that's not how we're to think about the Christian life. What Paul wants us to understand is that all of these commands that we've been laboring over for months now are leading up to this great conclusion. He said the point is all of your life is to be affected by your faith. All of it, whatever you do. And just in case we sort of try to find areas of our life to slide around that word whatever, he breaks it down into two neat categories. Whatever you do in word or deed. This is, this is ex inclusive. And this, of course, is, is in keeping with the rest of scriptures. We've looked at other passages before, like 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. How about Galatians 2.20? I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. 
The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. This is the clear teaching of Scripture. When you come to Christ, when God rescues you from your sin, it affects everything. But let's think for a moment about these two categories specifically that Paul mentions of our words and our deeds and break this down a little further. First of all, category number one, our words. You know, we live in a day and age in which it's very easy for our words to be heard by the world. In just seconds, we can type out our opinions and our thoughts regarding any topic under the sun and post them on social media for the world to see. And especially here in the United States, Christians can be tempted to to just vent their unfiltered thoughts and emotions and feeling justified in doing so because, of course, we're Americans with the right to the freedom of speech. And that is true as an American. But understand this, that while we may have freedom of speech as Americans, we do not have unbridled, unqualified freedom of speech as Christians. In fact, the Bible is very clear about the quality and character of the speech that we're to have. Listen to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. If you don't have this one memorized, it's a good one to meditate on. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, that is for building up according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Later in Colossians chapter 4, we're going to see another verse that's similar. Colossians 4 verse 6, Paul says, Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Notice how exhaustive all of these phrases are. Let no unwholesome word. Let all of your speech be with grace, always with grace. And in verse 17, whatever you do, in word or deed. Paul is pressing the point that as Christians, we have to remember that we are held accountable by God for our words. Every single one. Let me ask you, how much thought do you give to your words before you speak or write them? Too often, our speech follows something like this. This is the pattern that if we're not careful, our speech will follow. Feel, speak. Feel, speak. I feel it, so it must be justified, therefore I say it. But instead, what Paul is calling us to do is feel, think, speak. We've got to add a step in there. We can't deny the fact that we have feelings, but our feelings, listen guys, they're not sanctified. We cannot follow our feelings You can't stop yourself from feeling. You're going to feel things. You're going to have a reaction, an internal reaction to something you see on the news or something a friend says to you, whatever it is. But that's not the end of the story. It's not feel and then respond. It's feel, think, respond. That's what Paul is saying. Whatever you do. This is exactly what Solomon advocates in Proverbs 17, 27. This is a verse I've been really thinking on the last couple of weeks. Solomon says, he who restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. See, even as Christians, we can fall into the trap of thinking 
that it's virtuous just to allow our unfiltered emotions to flow out of our mouths in the form of words. I'm just speaking from what I feel. And some justify this kind of speech by saying things, well, you know, I'm just an open book, or, or I'm authentic, or I'm a straight shooter, or I'm just transparent. But you know, the scriptures, particularly the Proverbs, have a different word for this kind of speech. It's foolish. Foolish. This kind of speech fails to remember that we serve a good God who cares about our words and for whom, to whom we are accountable for our words. Now, in just a moment, Paul's going to explain that there's a grid. When I say feel, think, I mean think about certain specific things. And Paul's going to tell us how to think here in a moment. But before we look at that, let's look at category number two. Not only should our words be affected by our faith, but our deeds. Now, Paul explains here and elsewhere that just like our words... Every single thing we choose to do has to be filtered through a certain grid. Again, this is because at salvation, God changed us. But not only did God change us, the Bible says that there are specific good deeds that God has for us to do that were prepared beforehand, before we were even redeemed. Listen to Titus chapter 3, verse 8. It says, this is a trustworthy statement And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Or how about the more well-known Ephesians 2.10? After saying that we're saved by grace, Paul says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, listen, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. We say this all the time, but it's, it's true. We're not saved by our works, but we are saved unto good works. At salvation, we repent of our sins and we put our faith in Jesus Christ, not only as our Savior, but as our Lord, as our King, as our Master. To, to come to the gospel rightly is to come bowing your knee to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. It, it involves a change of masters. What you're saying, whether you realize it or not, is that I've been living under the mastery of my sin and even the, the devil, the Bible says, and I am turning from that and I am willfully placing myself under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. I will now serve him and he will be my master. And anyone who preaches to you that you can be genuinely saved and yet be completely unaffected in the way that you live has misunderstood the dramatic transformation the Bible describes called salvation, regeneration. It doesn't simply save us from eternal wrath, although, praise God, that is true. But he changes us in this temporal life changes us in the here and now in progressive measure so that we can walk in greater measure of faithfulness to Christ. That's the theology behind Paul's instruction when he says, whatever you'd say or do. But to this point, Paul's only begun to introduce the actual commitment that he's giving us. We haven't made our way to the command itself. So we're asking the question, what is this grid through which our church, our, 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 uh, our deeds and our our words should be brought. And that brings us to the actual command itself. 
When the command breaks down into two parts, as we'll see, but look at your Bible. It's right there in the middle of the verse, do all. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all. This is the command. Now, in your Bible, hopefully, the word do is in italics. It's italicized. The reason is because that's a way of signaling that that word is not actually written in the Greek text. And that's true. It's not. That's because in the Greek language, as we've said before, you can assume a verb. When it's very clear in context what the verb will be, a lot of times the author will simply skip it. They just won't write it. And that's what happens here. But clearly, the emphasis is this command to do all in a very certain way. Paul says specifically, there are two elements, two things that we need to keep in mind with all of our speech and with all of our actions. The first element is this. Do all with this element in mind, submission to Christ. Submission to Christ. He says, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. In the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul says, every word you say, every action you commit must be brought back to this thought. It must be done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, if we're going to understand this, we have to think about this phrase, in the name of the Lord Jesus. What exactly does he mean? What does it mean to say or do something in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Because obviously, if we're going to apply it, we have to understand this. You know, some people think about Jesus' name kind of like a magic wand. If I just say his name in connection with what it is I want to do, then God's going to see it through. He's going to make it happen as if we can just sort of sprinkle some pixie dust on our situation by saying the name of Jesus. That's not how the Bible talks about this phrase of, of doing things or saying things in Jesus' name. It's not a magic wand. It's not a guarantee that our... Plans will be prospered. You know, the Bible uses this phrase over and over again. If you just go and study this phrase, it's all over the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. Of course, in the Old Testament, it just says, in the name of the Lord. But in the New Testament, we have the addition of, in the name of the Lord Jesus. But the same idea is there either way. When the Bible talks about names, uh, particularly the name of God... It's usually used as a placeholder for the person as a whole. So it's not saying the name of Jesus separated from the person of Jesus. But when the Bible says something was done in the name of Jesus, it's making us think of the person of Jesus and the authority of Jesus and the work of Jesus himself. It's to take our mind to him, the God-man. Let me show you some examples of how this looks in the scriptures. This is, I'll just show you two. This is in Acts chapter five, 4, verses 5 to 12. Remember, Peter and John are arrested. They're brought before the elders and the scribes. And this is what it says. It says, On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas, the high priest, was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire. Listen to what they asked. By what power or in what name have you done this? 
Now, they've, they've just healed someone, and it caused a great commotion. That's the issue here. By what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, verse 8, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we're on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, by which, but which became the chief cornerstone. And listen to this, verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Now, over and over again, both from the mouth of the accusers and from the mouth of Peter, we have this phrase used differently of the name of Jesus. But what I want you to see there is every time it's used, it's used to refer to the person of Jesus based on whose authority, who's, who delegated this to you to do this, is what they asked them, on, based on whose authority. And Peter says, based upon the authority and the power of Jesus Christ. In fact, what Peter is saying is it wasn't me, ultimately, but it was Jesus himself working through me. One more example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we see that Jesus is the authority behind church discipline. This is what Paul says in verse 4 he says, in the name of our Lord Jesus, there's our phrase, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. There was a man in context there sinning in a very gross and open way. And basically what Paul is saying is he needs to be put out of the church on church discipline. But notice the authority he appeals to is Jesus in the name of Jesus. Now, what's happening? Paul is not waving a magic wand over the situation. And Peter is not saying, we just wave the name of Jesus around and this man was healed. That's not what he's saying. What both of them are saying is we're appealing to the person of Jesus and his authority. And based upon him and his work and authority, we're doing this thing that we're doing. Now, Back to our text in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. How does all this come together? What does Paul mean in this context? Because it's true that this phrase, in the name of Jesus, can be used in different ways. In our context, it's clear that this has a more overarching sense. It's more exhaustive because, remember, he says, whatever you say, that is, every word you say should be done in the name of the Lord Jesus, and everything you do not just particularly Christian things or particularly holy things, but everything. And so it must mean, it really can only mean this, to do something in this sense in the name of the Lord Jesus means to do something in submission to the Lord Jesus and in accordance with his revealed will, which is the scriptures. That's the idea. This, of course, is based upon the realities of Verses 1 to 4 in chapter 3 that we read earlier, that if we've been raised up with Christ, that is, we are in Christ, he's brought us to new life, because of that then everything is changed, 
We even have new citizenship, the, the Bible says. We're, we have a new family, a new household, and we're servants of a new master. And so everything then must be done in submission to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ and for his glory. Douglas Moo says it this way. He describes this phrase as to act always in concert with the nature and character of our Lord. John Calvin puts it this way. That life, must, that life must be regulated in such a manner that whatever we say or do may be wholly governed by the authority of Christ and may have an eye to his glory as the mark. So with that in mind, a good question to ask as you begin to think and filter your words and actions through this grid of the name of the Lord Jesus, the authority of the Lord Jesus, ask yourself something like this. Can I say with a clear conscience that this word or deed accurately represents the Lord Jesus Christ? That's what Paul is getting at. Another way to put it is this. Is this word or deed appropriate for one who claims to love and follow Jesus Christ? Now the truth is, if you're in Christ, I I don't think that you would have disagreed with this before you came into the room. I, I hope that all of us understand that every single part of our life is to be characterized by submission to Christ. But, on the other hand, if we're honest, we have to admit that not every one of our words and actions is done in the name of the Lord. We still sin. We still fall short of this very high, exalted standard. So if we're going to grow in obedience to Paul's instruction, really we have to answer two key questions, and that's what I want to do together now. First of all, we have to say, what are the temptations that keep us from living out this command? What, what trips us up in our pursuit of speaking and living in a way that honors Christ? And secondly, on the positive, what are the practices that need to be put in place for us to better obey this command on a daily basis? Now, as I meditated on this verse this week, I tried to boil it down in my mind to what, what are the, the frequent sins that we deal with that keep us from doing things in the Lord's name and rather doing things selfishly in our, in our own name, doing things that please us rather than please Christ. And really, it boils down to two primary sins. When these sins are present, we're in grave danger of speaking and doing things in a way that doesn't honor Christ, and they are pride and selfishness. Pride and selfishness are sneaky little sins that that creep into our way of thinking and living that often tempt us to live for our own glory, for the reputation of our own name, rather than that of the Lord Jesus. When we're prideful, for example, we have an exalted view of self And it causes us to feel justified when we live in a way that promotes our desires and our preferences and our reputation. Similarly, selfishness does the same thing. Selfishness is such a deadly sin because it warps our whole perspective where everything comes back to me, me. How does it affect me? What do I think? How do I feel? And it takes our eyes off of Christ and others. Remember, that's the order. How does it affect God? How does it affect others? Then, how does it affect me? But but selfishness just flips that around, where everything is me, me, me. 
And any time that those sins are, are with us, are present, we're in danger of failing to keep this verse. And so in addition to thinking on those two particular sins, I want us to think on some specific scenarios in life that often become danger zones that cause us to feel tempted and justified not to do things in the name of the Lord or for his glory. Really, we're asking the question, where are the battle lines drawn? Where do we fight this battle on a daily basis? And honestly, we could, we could come up with a long list of scenarios because we're sinners and we can turn almost any scenario into an opportunity to sin. But I've, I've boiled this down to, to five examples that I think we could all say, yeah, in those situations, I am surely tempted, if I'm not careful, to, to live for myself rather than for Christ. So let me just mention five common sources of temptation that trip us up as we seek to do whatever we do in the name of the Lord. The first source of temptation is when we are sinned against by others. When we are sinned against by others. I think nothing will tempt us towards selfishness and pride faster than being sinned against. And how often we feel justified to respond in sin ourselves. Yeah, I said that, but, but he, but she, yeah, I did that, but let me tell you what they did. When we are sinned against, suddenly it's as if, okay, it's justified, the gloves are off, and I have sort of a get-out-of-jail-free card. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says, whatever you do in word or deed. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 43 and 48. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you're to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What Jesus says is we, we're not off the hook when others sin against us. We're not even off the hook when someone becomes a true enemy. That means they've set themselves out to do us harm. He says pray for them, love them, serve them. Secondly, another scenario that often tempts us to do things in our own name rather than the name of Christ is when we're given a position of authority. When we're given a position of authority. Now, this one may not have come as immediately to mind as the first, but I assure you, this can be a great temptation. Let me just give you some examples that many of us face on a daily basis. This shows up, for example, in our parenting. Let me ask you, are the rules that you have for your kids really for their good and the glory of Christ... Or are they made in an attempt to create an environment that meets all of your personal preferences? We can use our authority in the home selfishly. I want it to be like this. I want my life to be this way, and so I'm going to put rules in place that make you do it my way. Another example, this may seem silly, but I've seen it happen many times, is, is something as simple as going to a restaurant I've seen Christians act in a very unchristlike manner towards their server 
just because the food was too slow or too cold or they got your drink wrong or, or, or they brought something out just not right. And, and I've seen people act like a king on a throne towards that server. How dare you do this to me? Of course, the higher up you go in authority, the greater the temptation and the greater the opportunity to abuse that authority. Paul says, whatever you do, do all in the name of the Lord. Number three, another common place of temptation where we fail in this area if we're not careful is when we're alone. When we're alone. Depending on your personality, you may long for moments of true alone time, of real peace and quiet. And that desire in and of itself is not a bad thing. I personally enjoy regular alone time. I understand that desire. But the truth is when we are alone, we have to be careful because selfishness is always creeping around the corner. There's no one else to think about. Just do what we want to do. It's easy to think as if, you know, it's not going to hurt anybody. But the truth is we're never really alone. Even when no one is watching, our Savior is with us. And you know as well as I do, things you do in alone can, uh, in private alone, can hurt a lot of people. The ripple effects of those sins can go far beyond your alone time. To be careful that even when we're alone, the things that we choose to take in for entertainment, for example, the things that we choose to dwell on and think about, all of them are to be submitted to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Two more examples I came up with that can be particularly tempting for us. Number four, when we experience a trial. When we experience a trial. As you know, trials can be painful. And God uses trials to stretch us and to grow us spiritually. But if we don't have a biblical perspective of trials, by that I mean if we don't understand that God is truly sovereign over every area of our life and that nothing comes into our life that is not allowed by God and intended for spiritual good by God that God will use for our good, if we don't understand that, then that trial can quickly become a source of temptation towards pride, selfishness, and all manner of sin. When you're in the midst of a trial, you've got to keep your eyes on Christ and not on yourself. Otherwise, we can easily fall into sin and forget that even our trials are included in that word, whatever you do, do all in the name of the Lord. Finally, number five, another danger zone for us as Christians is when we are spiritually lazy. When we're spiritually lazy. By spiritual laziness, I mean a failure to discipline yourself to regularly study the Word of God, run to Him in prayer, and meditate upon His truth throughout the day. Spiritual laziness is a sin dripping with pride and selfishness. It's prideful because when we're spiritually lazy, we are living as if we don't really need God. We don't need His Word. We're at a place of maturity where we can just kind of coast. I don't have to discipline myself to get up. I have to discipline myself to do those things. And it's selfish because it gives in the, into the desire to do what's easy rather than what is needed, even if it's hard. And many Christians fail to understand that there is no neutral in the Christian life. 
Hear me on that. There is no neutral. You are either moving forward in your sanctification or you are going backwards. But there's no standing still. It's like rowing a kayak into the stream. If you stop rowing, which direction do you go? Back. We can't let off the gas. And you just let yourself have a week or so, uh, you know, maybe a couple of weeks of just spiritual laziness, you know, just sleep in, get up when you want, you know, I'll read the Bible tomorrow, and you just keep pushing, and you don't really control your thoughts, and danger zone. If we want to do what Paul says and submit every word and every deed to the Lordship of Christ, then we can't afford to be spiritually lazy. Now, don't miss the point of this exercise. Why did I take a pause to work you through some of those scenarios? It's because that's how we apply these truths. I want you to add to the list in your own life. What are the scenarios in your life where, if you're honest, you say, when I trip up, when I say things that don't honor the Lord, and when I do things that don't honor the Lord, it's usually when this sort of thing's occurring. What are those? Because it's not enough to say, okay, I know the command, do everything for God's glory, and also know that I don't do that, hope I get better at it. There's got to be a bridge between those two. And part of the bridge is figuring out where are the danger zones, where's the battle fought, and then to draft a battle plan. The good news is Paul's already given us the battle plan over and over again. The battle plan to put off, renew your mind, and put on. So this is your assignment this morning. I want you to spend some time identifying the areas in your life where you most often choose to do what you want to do rather than what Christ would have you do. And then I want you to choose a specific passage of Scripture that you're going to memorize and meditate on in those moments. When you're in those scenarios, when you see them coming, be proactive when you know that that relative is coming over or, or whatever it is that is, is your thing that tempts you to, to say things that are sinful or do things that are sinful, get ready, have your verse at hand to not only dwell on but choose to walk in over and over and over again. And as we do that, Lord willing, we will better obey this command that whatever we do is submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ. But as we come to the end of this verse, I won't spend as much time here, but there is a second element that we need to take note of. Not only is everything to be done in submission to Christ, but Paul also says there's a second element. Everything's to be done with gratitude towards God. Gratitude towards God. He ends this verse giving thanks through him to God the Father. Do all giving thanks through him, that is through Christ, to God the Father. Not only are we to submit all of our words and actions to the authority of Christ, but we're to do it with a continual state of thanksgiving. In fact, this is a great test to test yourself to see whether or not you're actually doing all things for the glory of Christ. Are you in a constant state of thanksgiving towards God throughout the day? Do you find a reason to give praise and glory to God in every circumstance? You see, the the prevalence of gratitude in our hearts towards God is a measurement of whether or not we're really doing everything 
for his glory. When we're living for the glory of Christ, it transforms our perspective. Suddenly the events of the day and the people we encounter in the day are seen as, as gifts from God's hand. They're opportunities. They're opportunities to express the gospel, to share the gospel, to live the gospel, to be conformed to the gospel. But when we are the focus of our lives and our interests dominate our minds, frequently life will disappoint us, won't it? Things just never seem to go our way. When we're only looking at ourselves, all we will ever see is what goes wrong, what didn't happen that we were planning. But in those moments, if we will turn our mind back to the truth, reorient, get our eyes off of ourselves and onto Christ, everything changes. And there's even a hint at that here in this verse, giving thanks through him to God the Father, through Christ. So even thinking on the fact that you have access to God the Father, as a Christian, you can actually come before God the Father any time of any day and be welcomed. Why? Because you come through Christ. You have a mediator. You have one who has paid the way so that we have no excuse for just wallowing in our sin and our depression and, and our despair. We can come to the Father, bringing our request to the Father through the Son. And so if you're in the middle of your day and everything's falling apart and it's, it's just not going the way you thought it was going to go and you just can't find anything to give thanks for in the moment, start here. God, thank you for Christ that I can come to you because of what he's done for me. You start there. And all of a sudden, you'll notice your perspective starts to shift. And you'll say, you know what? Actually, also, thank you. Thank you for this and, and for this because your perspective was on you and your lens rather than Christ. Don't you see how this is a perfect ending to this wonderful section in Colossians 3? Whatever you do, do it all for his glory, and as you do it, give him thanks. Give thanks to God. At the most basic level, the Christian life, of course, is about Christ. It's about Christ, and our lives should reflect that. Let me ask you, based on that, as we close our time, who are you living for, really? Who are you living for, can you honestly say this morning that the pattern of your life is one in which you measure your words and your actions intentionally against the person of Christ, the word of God? Or do you live your life driven by your cravings, driven by your desire for reputation or your preferences? Understand that, that living daily in submission to the lordship of Christ is actually not radical Christianity. It's just Christianity. That's what it is to be a Christian. That's what Christians do. And so if you're here this morning and the honest truth is, that's not your grid. You know, you wake up, you do your thing, you go to church on Sunday, you know, sometimes and maybe read the Bible every now and then, but, but your life is your life and you've got your plans and your agendas and, and you do it the way you want to do it. Understand, it, it may very well be that you've never really come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And I would plead with you this morning to understand the Bible says that all of us are born in sin. The reason that it comes so naturally to think about yourself before others, the reason that it's so easy for those words to roll off the tongue that hurt when you've been hurt is because we are sinners from birth. The Bible says because of our sin, we have earned the punishment of God, the wrath of God for our sin. And, and, and if we are left to ourselves in that sin, then we will experience eternal judgment for our sin. The Bible calls hell, separated from God, under the eternal hand of wrath of God. But the Bible says that in his goodness and his grace and his kindness, God has made a way for us. That he has sent his own perfect son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who never sinned, who lived the perfect life we should have lived, the God-man in one person, fully God, fully man. And Jesus Christ gave his perfect life as a sacrifice to God on the cross to pay for the sins of all of his people. The Bible says if you will repent of your sins, you will turn from your sinful way, submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ, believing that he alone really is the Son of God who died for sinners and rose again and is your only hope of salvation. If you will believe that and put your faith in him, you will be saved. You will know true relationship with God because you'll be able to come to the Father through the Son. Who are you living for? That's the first appropriate way that we should apply this verse. I know some of you, many of you, I pray all of you, are here and are in Christ. And so, of course, the application for us is be imitators of Christ. Be imitators of Christ. Not one of us has perfect speech and perfect actions. We all have homework to do today. This is not one of those, it's like, well, that didn't really apply to me. You know, maybe next week. But by God's grace and the power of the Spirit, we can grow. We can grow in those situations that are difficult. And so again, your assignment is to think through the areas in which you are most regularly tempted to live for yourself rather than Christ and get a game plan together. What are you putting off? How are you renewing your mind? And what are you putting on in those moments? And it's my prayer that as we do that, with a spirit of gratitude, that we will grow as a church into a mature man in Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for such a clear passage as this to remind us that every single area of our lives is to be submitted to you. God, forgive us that so often that's just simply not the case in so many ways. And yet you don't leave us, you don't forsake us, continue to to work within us. God, help us to truly think before we speak, to think before we act, so that your name would be honored. We ask it in the name of Christ. Amen.